Okay, uh, welcome back for lunch. Oh, welcome back from lunch. Um, uh, my name is Dan Baruch, and um, I work at the Beth Israel Deacons Medical Center in Boston. And what I'd like to do uh, for this lecture is to give you an overview of where we are in the HIV cure field. Uh, the HIV cure field, as I'm sure you know, is really a research field. And so I will uh, make uh, occasional comments that are relevant for your daily practice. But much of what I'm going to say is not directly related to your daily practice, but uh, uh, hopefully will be part of uh, future practice. So here are my uh, uh, disclosures. Uh, the objectives of this lecture are to describe how the HIV reservoir is the barrier to cure, to describe how an HIV cure can be defined, and also to describe uh, the state of current HIV cure strategies. Also, I'd like to mention uh, that I did work together with a friend and colleague, Steve Deeks, on uh, some of these slides. So the topics uh, to discuss today on the HIV cure agenda. First, why do we need a cure? Or do we need a cure? Current drugs are doing very, very well. Do we need a cure at all? Second, if we were to achieve a cure, how would we define that? It might seem like a trivial question, but actually it's, it's really quite a complex question uh, once you uh, start to peel back layers of the onion. Uh, how should we just define either a complete cure or viral remission? And what does that actually mean? And then the bulk of the time during this lecture, I will talk about different strategies that are all experimental and none of them are clinically approved of how we might be able to achieve this goal. And since I don't have an answer for you, I won't tell you how we will achieve it, but I will outline uh, leading thoughts in these different areas, such as gene and cell therapy, uh, so-called shock and kill approaches, so-called block and lock approaches, and I'll define these terms in subsequent slides. Uh, the use of very early antiretroviral therapy, uh, immunotherapy, which has gained considerable enthusiasm over the last several years, uh, as well as uh, other approaches such as sanctuary disruption and combination therapy. So first, with effective treatment and prevention options, do we even need an HIV cure? Maybe I'll ask the audience that. So, so who, who, and there's no, there's no right answer. Uh, so this is not an audience response question. This is just a spontaneous show of hands question. So how many people in the audience think that we actually need an HIV cure? And how many people think that we actually really don't need an HIV cure? And it's not just because this is a cure lecture, hopefully. <laughs> um, <clears throat> At least uh, um, in, 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 in polls of uh, many patients, uh, then uh, if there were an option for a cure, uh, we think many, many patients would opt for it. Of course, it depends on the efficacy as well as the safety of the approaches. Defining why a cure is needed actually is not just a question of desire for the biomedical research community, but also impacts uh, the actual product profile, the target product profile of what a cure might look like. So I think probably the strongest data of why we need an HIV cure really comes from the global HIV statistics. Um, as, as I think people know, over 36 million people are living with HIV AIDS in the world. Uh, uh, over 20 million are currently accessing antiretroviral therapy. <coughs> But probably the most striking feature of the global epidemic is that prevention appears to have lagged behind uh, treatment and a reduction of mortality. 
And so despite some of our best prevention efforts, including uh, the major advances and continuing advances in PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, uh, there still are about 1.8 million people who become newly infected with HIV uh, every year. And that number is declining, but at a very modest rate. Uh, in some cases, a, a rate that is almost not even detectable. Uh, so the, uh, so there, there seems to be major barriers to HIV prevention. That's a topic that will be covered, I think, later in the afternoon uh, uh, by Dr. Landovitz and others. Uh, but because of this, because it's very, it's very difficult to prevent HIV infection, <clears throat> then many people are getting infected and uh, antiretroviral drugs have not cured a single individual. So uh, there will be an increasing need for a cure as the prevalence of HIV continues to uh, be very, very high. So if we are able to develop an HIV cure, what would it ideally look like? Uh, well, what it can't look like, it can't look like uh, exceedingly expensive therapy that would only be applicable and deployable in uh, wealthy areas of the world because that would not achieve the global health objective. So these are um, some, uh, some, some uh, proposals of what an ideal HIV cure would look like. The efficacy would need to show uh, absence of viremia in the absence of antiretroviral therapy for a period of at least two years. <clears throat> Early failures would be tolerable because people would be under monitoring, but late failures have to be rare. And that's a tall order, and you'll see why in a few slides. Uh, the reason is because um, um, if individuals that are supposedly cured need to be followed extremely closely as they would be in clinical trials for evidence of viral rebound at any point in time, then any sort of benefits of a cure are, are quickly outweighed. The product needs to be administered for a limited period of time, such as a few months, and uh, ideally specialized tertiary care should not be required for that therapy. The target population uh, would be uh, individuals that are HIV infected, uh, who initiated ART uh, really at any stage of the infection, not just in acutes, for example, as well as in all populations. The long-term safety has to be comparable to ART, uh, otherwise it's non-viable, and the risk of transmission uh, needs to be negligible. And the cost is a debatable number, but has to be relatively low because uh, clearly the vast majority of HIV-infected individuals are not the patients we take care of in the United States, but rather are in the developed world. So what's the problem? Why don't current drugs, as wonderful and life-saving as they are, why don't current antiretroviral drugs cure HIV infection? And the simple reason is that HIV persists as fully integrated and often silent genomes in a hard-to-study tissue-based cell population that, is, that essentially persists indefinitely. This is called the viral reservoir. The viral reservoir, studies from uh, Bob Silicano at Johns Hopkins and others have shown uh, very clearly that the viral reservoir exists in latently infected CD4 positive T cells, mostly resting cells uh, in, uh, in, in lymphoid compartments. And the decline of the viral reservoir cells is exceedingly slow. In fact, it's estimated that on the optimal antiretroviral therapy that has complete cessation of virus replication, uh, it would take over 70 years to eliminate the viral reservoir. And that's even assuming that the reservoir doesn't self-renew, which is also an assumption that's probably wrong. So essentially, uh, there, is a, there, is, there is no indication that current antiretroviral drugs, at least the ones we have today, uh, will be able to cure HIV infection. So 
what would an HIV cure look like? Ideally, the way we, as infectious disease physicians, the way we think about a cure would be microbiologic eradication of the pathogen. Uh, and that would be the optimal cure, which would be a microbiologic cure. This, it would be defined as complete removal of all replication-competent HIV genomes from the body. This might have been achieved with uh, two cases, the Berlin patient and the London patient, and I believe Dr. Iran mentioned these earlier today. Um, but proving a negative is very hard, if not impossible, to do. So it's very difficult to actually prove that somebody uh, has a microbiologic cure. And some questions even remain with these two cases. So people may not actually really know if they are cured or not. This is one example of how difficult it might be to define an HIV cure. This is a patient uh, from Steve Deeks from UCSF uh, that was published in PLOS Medicine in which an individual was treated extremely early during infection, within the first few days after exposure. This individual was treated for a prolonged period of time and then was taken off antiretroviral drugs. Clearly, this person had an exceedingly small reservoir to the point that it was undetectable by current assays. And after antiretroviral drug cessation, there was a prolonged period of time when the individual was aviremic. For the first 220 days, you very well might have thought this person was cured because over half a year and there was no evidence of viral rebound. And then suddenly, then uh, after uh, 220, 230 days, then there's viral rebound in this individual. And clearly this individual was infected all along and the virus can be proven to be the same virus that originally was for infection. It's, this is not a new infection. This is a viral rebound of a pre-existing reservoir that existed all along. So in the absence of a complete cure, which is actually unprovable, uh, there will likely need to be some sort of sustained lifelong immune responses targeting HIV to keep very small numbers of reservoir cells in check. At least that's the current thinking. So there are now dozens of cases of very low reservoir states in which the virus rebounded during interruption, presumably due to lack of effective immunity. Um, and these are just some examples. I'm not gonna go through all of them, but two examples that you may have heard of uh, are uh, the, the, the so-called Boston transplant patients uh, from uh, Tim Heinrich and Dan Kritzkis. Um, in the Annals of Internal Medicine, in which two patients that underwent a stem cell transplantation had a uh, prolonged period of uh, aviremia after ART cessation, uh, but then after uh, uh, six to nine months, then these individuals rebounded with clearly full-blown uh, HIV replication at that point in time. And another case that uh, you may have heard of is the so-called uh, Mississippi baby or Mississippi child uh, reported by Debbie Persaud and colleagues in the New England Journal, uh, in which <clears throat> a baby was treated within hours of delivery, had a clearly documented uh, HIV viremia, and then uh, after a period of antiretroviral therapy was lost to follow-up. During this loss of follow-up, there was a period of uh, a period without antiretroviral therapy, and this individual, this uh, now child, came in and uh, uh, did not have any detectable virus in peripheral blood, remained aviremic for a long period of time. I believe it was over two years, or close to two years. And then after nearly two years, then the child had a rebounded virus, and the virus, the sequence matched the original incoming virus. So it was clearly, again, a rebound virus originating from a latent reservoir that was undetectable for a period of years. <clears throat> so given that a microbiologic cure 
um, might currently be out of reach, what would be the next best vision of a cure? And that would be something that uh, people call a long-term remission, also known as a so-called functional cure. So you may see that word in, in, uh, in the literature. It is likely that a functional cure is more achievable than a microbiologic cure. Uh, and what this really is, is durable control, biologic, immunologic, or otherwise, of a persistent residual reservoir. So the goal will be to reduce the reservoir, the vial reservoir, to as low a level as possible, and then to have something that basically keeps it in check. And the phenotype would be undetectable viral loads in the absence of ART. And we know from now large numbers of clinical studies that uh, undetectable viral loads would then uh, result in uh, no transmission risk. So an example of this uh, might include the elite controllers that really have that phenotype or the super elite or, or, or exceptional controllers in particular that essentially have undetectable viral uh, loads for prolonged periods of time in the absence of antiretroviral therapy. But what's important about elite controllers, and this is something that might be relevant to your clinical practice, uh, so I, I would hope you remember this point at least, is that uh, elite controllers, as well as another group of individuals that are so-called post-treatment controllers, uh, maybe 10 or 20% of people who start therapy early and then have some degree of control of virus after ART is stopped, um, uh, these people are still infected. And there is, there is no uh, uh, current evidence that uh, these individuals, uh, elite controllers or post-treatment controllers, uh, actually are on their way to a cure. The mechanism of this process is unknown. It likely is multifactorial. They probably have a low reservoir size. They probably have low T-cell activation. Uh, typical T-cell responses are relatively low, likely because of little antigen stimulus. Uh, they're enriched for certain immune markers and immune responses, but that's really an area of research that is really not conclusive at this point. Um, but I would emphasize, again, that um, individuals uh, such as elite controllers or post-treatment controllers, uh, even if they have prolonged periods of time uh, that are aviremic in the absence of antiretroviral therapy, uh, we, we currently do not have evidence to suggest that they are on their path to a cure or have been cured. So what are the viable strategies by which a cure or remission might be achieved? So it's a vast research field. And uh, I'm just going to go over some of the uh, high point concepts at sort of a 30,000 foot level. And uh, I'm happy to discuss uh, in more detail some of the uh, research results in the question and answer period if people are interested. But just to give you sort of a, a broad picture overview of where people are thinking in terms of strategies for a cure. Um, I'll, I'll talk uh, for a couple slides for each one of these. Gene and cell-based therapy, the so-called shock and kill approach, the so-called block and lock approach. Uh, the introduction of early antiretroviral therapy, and immunotherapy. So first, for gene and cell-based therapy, the proof of concept is uh, clear. The Berlin patient and the London patient. You may have heard about the London patient that was announced at the CORI meeting, uh, as well as a manuscript that was in the journal Nature a few months ago. These two patients appear to have been cured through uh, allogeneic stem cell transplantation because they had concurrent leukemia. And uh, these are probably the uh, two uh, published examples of an HIV cure. Um, however, one cannot uh, uh, give allogeneic stem cell transplants to people who don't have an indication for it because of the intrinsic risk of the procedures, of course. So multiple safer strategies are currently being pursued to try to achieve the same goal. 
including uh, direct excision of proviruses by various cellular and molecular strategies. But these are complex procedures that also have a substantial intrinsic risk. Ironically, it's the only strategy that currently has likely worked for a cure. And so these are used as proof of concepts to really trigger and invigorate the research field. Uh, so far, uh, there's nothing in uh, transplantation or cell-based therapy that's ready for clinical uh, large-scale application. And the real question is, are these strategies, will these strategies be scalable on a global level, and can they ever be safer than ART? So let's turn to some other strategies that are even more in the research realm uh, and that have not achieved proof of concept in humans, uh, but have some promising concepts or in some cases animal data. So the first one is a strategy called shock and kill. And what this means is that uh, the, the reason why we can't cure HIV infection is because there is a latent viral reservoir, which is an infected CD4 cell in which the provirus is transcriptionally silent or largely silent. Essentially, the virus has gone to sleep and therefore cannot be targeted by either drugs or immune mechanisms. So if there were a way to wake up the cell, to get it to start producing virus, then that cell becomes susceptible to various uh, methods of elimination. So shock and kill essentially uh, means to use uh, one strategy as a shock to essentially uh, stimulate or wake up these cells, and another strategy, such as potentially an immune targeting strategy as the kill, to try to destroy these cells once they start showing evident signs of virus. The problem is that we don't have uh, very good drugs for either of these, and in particular, it's, it's uh, very difficult to develop uh, pharmaceuticals that would essentially shock these cells. Uh, what we need is a so-called latency-reversing agent, ideally to be specific uh, for these cells, but it's very difficult to differentiate these infected cells versus uninfected cells. So multiple latency-reversing agents, or LRAs, have been tested. The effect in vivo and humans so far has been modest and inconsistent. And there's a lot of basic research discovery currently aimed at identifying novel pathways or combinations. There are many different classes of drugs, uh, uh, typically uh, various um, um, uh, uh, immune stimulators that are being explored as potential latency reversing agent. I'll just mention the toll-like receptor agonists and the epigenetic modifiers such as histone deacetylase inhibitors uh, because those are currently in clinical trials and are being tested. But many other compounds are being proposed and have some level of in vitro or animal uh, evidence. None of these are the uh, clear uh, smoking gun yet. A second strategy is really conceptually the exact opposite of shock and kill. So shock and kill tries to take the latency cells, the, the, sorry, the latency D4 cells, activate them and then kill them. Block and lock is, is, is almost the exact opposite strategy, which is to try to coerce them into essentially permanent silencing. So this, this strategy really uh, says that if you can block a latently infected CD4 cell from reactivating, then you essentially render it irrelevant to the host. So this, um, uh, most viruses are difficult to reactivate ex vivo, and uh, the objective of this strategy will be to induce permanent latency by different strategies. One strategy is inhibiting TAT or different host pathways such as mTOR. Um, 
currently there's there's a no no proof of concept for this, uh, but uh, the objective is shown in the graph, which is that. Uh, in, in, if you could induce deep latency, for example, with a TAT inhibitor, uh, then you might be able to essentially render these cells no longer uh, a risk for reactivation. How about provision of early antiretroviral therapy? Uh, about five uh, years ago, there was a lot of enthusiasm that if you could identify patients very early during infection and start antiretroviral therapy with the best agents as quickly as possible, then that alone might be sufficient to, um, uh, to, to, redu uh, to, to induce a durable remission or cure. Uh, and you might be able to take these individuals, treat them for a period of time, take them off drugs, and then they're cured. So is it possible that treatment early in infection might prevent latency and might preserve immune function? A lot of those initial hopes ended up not being uh, borne out clinically. This is one study uh, by Jintanat Ananwaranich uh, and colleagues from their early treatment Thai cohort, where they took very early FIBIG-1 treated individuals. What this means is that these individuals were part of an acquisition cohort in which they were tested twice weekly for evidence, or sorry, once weekly for evidence of infection. And as soon as there was evidence of infection, then they were put on antiretroviral drugs within uh, a very, essentially within days of infection. Uh, these individuals were then treated for a prolonged period of time with ART. And then when they removed ART to examine whether these individuals were actually cured, then 100% of them rebounded. So I think this shows uh, this clinical data together with the anecdotes that I mentioned earlier, such as the Boston transplant patient and, sorry, sorry, so, such as the Mississippi baby, um, uh, reinforce the idea that it does not appear to be feasible to treat people early enough to uh, block establishment of the reservoir. Now, of course, theoretically it's possible because as clinicians, we know that post-exposure prophylaxis works, but that really is as early as it needs to be. Um, uh, animal modeling data suggests that as soon as there is any detectable viremia at all, then the reservoir has already been established. So what we know from post-exposure prophylaxis is that you can block infection with antiretroviral drugs, but only if they're truly within a day or a couple days of the exposure pre-viremia. And there is no evidence to date that uh, would suggest that once an individual has any detectable level virus at all, uh, that you can block establishment of the reservoir. So how about immunotherapy? Uh, and there's a lot of activity currently in the field on various immunologic strategies to try to induce uh, remission or cure. And here I'm just going to talk briefly about three of them. CAR T cells, broadly neutralizing antibodies and therapeutic vaccines. CAR T cells and related biologics, there is some proof of concept that, that CAR T cells have extraordinary capacity, particularly in the oncology fields. For broadly neutralizing antibodies, uh, there are some proof of concept data uh, in non-human primates, as well as early data in humans. And for therapeutic vaccines, there is some proof of concept data for non-HIV indications, such as herpes zoster and HPV, in terms of a therapeutic benefit of boosting the immune response once somebody is already infected, but not yet for HIV. So briefly, for CAR T-cells, there are a growing number of phase one and phase two clinical trials testing CAR T-cells for HIV. And these are just a couple example studies, uh, early studies uh, essentially showing safety and feasibility. 
However, there still is a lot of work needed before CAR T cells for HIV really can become a reality. Uh, toxicity management is, is key, such as uh, cytokine release syndromes, neurotoxicity, and off-target effects. Uh, in an oncology population, um, adverse event rates that might be acceptable uh, might not be acceptable for an otherwise healthy ART-suppressed HIV-infected individual. <laughs> also, there need to be improved CARs. There need to be more specific, bispecific, and antiviral components. It would be best to target virally infected cells as opposed to all cells. And for an HIV cure CAR-T approach, then ART would be used to prevent antigen exposure as needed. And there's several trials ongoing now with CAR-T cells expressing either broadly neutralizing antibodies or CD4 receptors. So how about broadly neutralizing antibodies? These have been uh, discussed quite a bit over the last uh, several years. There are some proof of concept studies in humans that suggest at least antiviral activity of broadly neutralizing antibodies. There is no data that I'm aware of that shows that broadly neutralizing antibodies can truly deplete the viral reservoir in humans. Uh, but these are some early phase clinical trials from Michelle Nussensweiss's group at Rockefeller that show that combinate, particularly combinations of broadly neutralizing antibodies can have substantial antiviral activity when given to art-naive viremic individuals, as well as can maintain viral suppression in art-suppressed individuals uh, once art is discontinued. So here's some data showing that uh, if you take an art-suppressed individual and you essentially switch from ART to broadly neutralizing antibodies, then you can maintain biologic suppression with two caveats. First, if the virus is susceptible to the antibodies you're using, and second, that the effect wanes when the antibody levels go away. This is a study, uh, this is a preclinical study uh, from our group in which we showed uh, in a proof of concept study in uh, non-human primates that if you infect non-human primates with the HIV equivalent virus called SHIV and you initiate ART very early and then administer broadly neutralizing antibodies with or without an immune stimulator, in this case we used a TLR7 agonist, uh, then what we can achieve is a significant uh, reduction of viral rebound after ART is discontinued. This is an example, a uh, proof of concept example in an animal model of a shock and kill approach because this effect was really seen most prominently in the combination group when we use a TLR7 agonist to shock the cells and then an antibody called PGT121 to then try to eliminate these cells. And so this is promising, but with a caveat that in this study, we treated monkeys seven days after infection, and so they had vanishingly low viral reservoirs. How this will play out into either early treated humans or the typical chronically treated humans remains to be seen. So for broadly neutralizing antibodies, um, there is clearly an ability of uh, BNABs to recognize and eliminate virus-infected cells. And this activity uh, theoretically can be enhanced by co-administration of an innate immune stimulator, such as a TLR agonist or another LRA that might have the capacity to activate cells, which makes sense because uh, there's no reason to think that any immunologic approach, be it antibodies or T cells, could have an effect on a totally quiescent reservoir cell that is not producing any viral antigens. So if a um, nonspecific innate immune stimulator can activate viral reservoir cells just enough so they present some envelope on the cell surface, then a broadly neutralizing antibody theoretically might be able to kill that cell. How about therapeutic vaccines? Again, they've been discussed for many years, actually decades. 
And uh, uh, really, uh, to date, uh, many vaccines have been tried in HIV-infected individuals, and, and some of these have shown immunogenicity, but so far, there's been minimal success in terms of any clinical benefit uh, in these individuals. Here's one example from Tony Fauci's group at the NIH that uh, they recently published a study that uh, importantly contained a control group, so you can actually tell whether it worked or not. Uh, and they used a complicated vaccine that involved multiple antigens, IL-12, uh, VSV vectors, and um, there was no effect on viral rebound after treatment interruption. You can see the viral rebound after treatment discontinuation is really the same in the placebo group and the vaccine group. This is another study from our group, again, in a preclinical model in non-human primates, in which we showed that a therapeutic vaccine had little effect on its own, but the effect could be enhanced substantially when used conjointly with uh, innate immune stimulant, again, a TLR7 agonist. So in this particular non-human primate study, we infected monkeys with a monkey version of HIV called SIV. Um, and then we started antiretroviral therapy, again, very early at day seven. We then administered the vaccine either with or without the innate immune stimulator, the TLR7 agonist, and then we stopped antiretroviral drugs and looked at viral rebound. You can see that uh, um, the effect was modest at best, and the effect was really only seen in the group that received the vaccine plus the TLR7 agonist, suggesting that there is really a synergy between um, administration of um, uh, uh, innate immune activators and a specific immunologic approach to try to eliminate these cells. The TLR7 agonist is called a vesitolimod and is being in, in clinical trials, and the vaccine is also currently in phase one and phase two clinical trials. So therapeutic vaccines uh, might be able to enhance the capacity of the immune system to clear the reservoir during ART. They also might be able to enhance the capacity of the immune system to control HIV in the absence of ART and the activity may be enhanced by co-administration of an innate immune stimulator. And clinical trials are underway to really test these concepts. Two of the um, innate immune stimulators that are currently in clinical trials is a TLR9 agonist and a TLR7 agonist. Uh, and currently, it's really not known which, if either of these, will achieve the desired effects in humans. So the last point I'd like to make is about how we can do these studies and how this research is done. And it has become increasingly apparent that study designs really need to include treatment interruptions to, as an analytic tool to determine if any of these cure approaches works. And it's a bit counterintuitive because um, as clinicians, we emphasize to all our patients that you must stay on your antiretroviral drugs. And in the context of a clinical trial, they might actually be told to uh, to, or rather be invited to come off their antiviral drugs if they want to participate in the study. And scientifically, it's believed that treatment interruptions are critical because there are no current analytic tools, there are no laboratory measures of cure, and there's no laboratory measures of the viral reservoir that are believed to be meaningful, particularly at the level of resolution that is needed uh, to assess for cure. Now, if there's viral DNA or inducible virus present, then we know that they're not cured. But if those levels are reduced to levels that are below the detection limit of all current assays, then it certainly doesn't mean that they are cured. And the only way to tell is to take them off therapy and, and, and see if they uh, rebound. So treatment interruptions, and this is more of a clinical trial concept, 
treatment interruptions are increasingly being viewed as necessary and uh, in some cases acceptable um, to evaluate concepts for HIV cure. Uh, there is a, a, a large-scale agreement in the scientific as well as uh, a patient uh, advocate communities, uh, but this has to be done carefully with informed consent, uh, avoiding coercion, as well as mitigating against risks, such as excluding patients who might be at particular risk uh, of uh, treatment interruption, such as those with low nadirs, history, uh, complex medical histories, um, uh, individuals that have low low CD4 counts or had a very low starting CD4 count. There has to be age limits. There has to be partner engagement with PrEP and strict ART restart criteria. Typically, that involve any clinical symptoms, evidence of CD4 declines, or sustained viremia. And there's probably about as many ART restart criteria as there are researchers implementing them. So there's currently uh, uh, no clear consensus in the field of exactly how to do this, except that conceptually, people think that, think that, think that these are needed, and some form of CD4 decline uh, certainly people agree that any clinical symptoms, such as acute retroviral syndromes, or some definition of sustained or high-level viremia uh, would be a trigger to put people back on therapy. And without going through the specifics, there is a uh, consensus report, uh, not as a definitive answer, but really as a first attempt at getting scientists, physicians, patient advocates, community groups, funders, stakeholders, and other groups together uh, to come up with recommendations for analytical treatment interruptions in the, in the setting of uh, HIV cure research trials. So briefly to summarize, um, where we are in 2019, uh, there have been two likely HIV cures that have been reported, uh, both with bone marrow transplantation. However, this strategy is certainly not scalable in the present form. Proof of concept data exists at least in animal models, for most steps in the so-called shock and kill strategy, and early data in, in humans and animal models exists. There is no definitive data in humans yet for this strategy. The block and lock strategy remains promising, at least theoretically, but really has not yet achieved uh, uh, proof of concept in animals or humans. And HIV cure research will require treatment interruption studies to determine the effectiveness of various approaches. I think I'll stop there and uh, open it up to any questions and uh, questions you might have. Thank you, Dan. Good. Should I stand here or should I go back? No, just stand here. That was a lovely talk, and thank you very much. Uh, I have. I'll, go, I'll start the questioning off. How? accurate do you imagine the DNA assay of peripheral lymphocytes is of measuring the reservoir? So that's a very good question uh, because it's a measurement we can make. It's relatively simple to measure viral DNA in peripheral blood and even in lymph node biopsies. It turns out that that is probably uh, largely irrelevant for, uh, for HRA cure research. And the reason is because the vast majority of integrated proviruses are defective and are not replication competent. Uh, Bob Silicano's group at Johns Hopkins estimates that uh, less than 3% of viral DNAs that are detected by the viral DNA assay have any relevance at all. And so, so um, uh, the total viral DNA 
essentially as a measure of defective uh, virus uh, components. Now, there are next-generation assays, some that have literally been published a few months ago, uh, that are assays that are much more geared to detect replication-competent viruses. Those assays are more complex, but show some promise uh, that might even be clinically relevant in the end. However, even if there is an assay that can measure the replication-competent subset of the viral DNA-positive cells, then the assays suffer from sensitivity. And uh, the, the, the clinical cases that were thought of as possible cures, such as the Boston transplant patients, the Mississippi baby, all had viral DNA measurements that were below the level of detection. So I think that one could probably say that if the replication-competent viral DNA measurement was undetectable, then there's a possibility of a cure, but by, all, by no means is that guaranteed. But if there is detectable replication-competent viral DNA, then for sure the person has not been cured. Another question I'll, I'll ask is that in our experience in the MAX, the elite controller, so the few that we have, all begin to fall apart in 15 to 20 years. It's not forever. I don't know whether that's been your experience or... Well, I think that that really reinforces uh, one of the points I tried to make about mid midway through my presentation, which is that uh, uh, patients, for whatever reason, have a prolonged period of aviremia in the absence of ART, such as elite controllers, such as post-treatment controllers, such as the rare people after various interventions. Uh, in, in general, we would not consider those individuals cured, nor do we think that they're on a pathway that they will ever achieve cure. And if they haven't achieved cure, then there's always a possibility of a rebound right. um, or otherwise evidence of clinical disease progression as time goes, time goes on. Thank you very much. Oh, yes, please. Um, Dan, do you think there are other cells involved in, in persistence with HIV uh, other than uh, uh, T cells or rescue T cells like macrophage or other? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, and uh, I think most people will agree that the bulk of the reservoir are um, uh, uh, pro-virus-containing CD4-positive T cells. Um, however, I'll mention two things. So first, the anatomic distribution of that uh, can be quite complex, and there could be those uh, cells in deep lymph nodes, in, in the CNS, and in other places, and not just in peripheral blood. So that's another reason why the assays are limited, because even if there's no provirus in peripheral blood, you could have a virus reactivate in an axillary lymph node or a deep inguinal lymph node somewhere, and then that could lead to full-blown uh, systemic rebound. Uh, but then the question is also, are there other cells that are infected with virus uh, or otherwise contain virus that could be the source of rebound? And that's where the research field becomes more controversial. Uh, uh, there are some people who believe that macrophages can be a bona fide viral reservoir as well, um, and uh, that's somewhat controversial. Uh, there are there are uh, some people who would dispute that statement, uh, but but that's currently a debate ongoing in the research community. And then also, um, uh, virus can be sequestered for long periods of times on the surface of follicular dendritic cells as well. And so those two cell populations come to mind as other possible reservoirs, uh, but not as clearly established as what we think are the bulk of the reservoirs in CD4 T cells. Are there other questions? 
Thank you very much. Thank you.